Welcome to the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast that's raising the bar on craft cocktails. I am your host, Louise Solace, and with me is my very, very talented friend, who is the real pioneer woman in my book, the mixtress DC Gina. <laughs> oh my God, Louise. I wish I was a pioneer woman. I was just smart enough to put that out, like, put that out there and be like, I love to bake with butter. You could have had a fortune going. You want me to make food for you in a really beautiful setting? Fuck yes, I'm yeah. into it. Yep. You're talking about the TV show, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I was talking about her. She was one of the first, but open up the show with some uh, American history and the part that's filled with female pioneers and women who fought for their rights, worked hard for equality, and you know made great strides in, the, in all the fields, like science, politics, sports, literature, art, all of them. Like I said, all the fields. But what this leads up to is a little game show for you. It is pop quiz time, Gina. Oh, my God. I hate this part. (laughs) Here we go. This is how unconnected I am to, like, (laughs) the television. But go ahead. This one's not TV, but it is film. In 2010, Catherine Bigelow became the first woman, which is crazy as 2010, to win an Academy Award for Best Director. Do you know what that movie was? Nothing. It was... The Hurt Locker. I've seen it. And you know what the crazy thing about, you know, I have script I'll, writers now. The big thing about Catherine Bigelow, you know what's funny? Ask David Solace when he saw her naked. Mm-hmm. Yep. Remember, he grew up in L.A. He saw that one naked when he oh was my, 17 years old. Oh, my God. Yeah. She was still married to Cameron then. So, anyway. So, moving along. Frances Perkins became the first woman member of a presidential cabinet in 1933. Now, I'm going to admit I did not know this one. Do you know who she served for? Roosevelt. Good job. Do you know which one? Franklin D. I was going to say FDR. <laughs> I had to in 1933. No, you know, the only reason why I know that is because you can go visit his prohibition locker of alcohol here in D.C. Oh, there you go. It's pathetic. <laughs> now ask me any other president. I got nothing. Go ahead. Okay, I got one more for you. In 1932, Amelia Earhart became the first woman to fly solo across the... Atlantic. Yes, I didn't even have to give you your uh, multiple choice. Yes, she first went solo across the Atlantic Ocean. Good job. I've got one more for you. Okay. And this is kind of funny. In 1972, which we all know is a very good year. Yes. The finest year. Yes. The finest year. It produced a lot of good women. So this woman in particular is the first woman named Entertainer of the Year from the Country Music Association. And hint. She was a Jolly coal porn. miner's oh, daughter. Patsy, no, I know who this is. Loretta Lynn. Yes. I'm like, I'm like, I got it. I'm like, yay! Oh, I yay. wish it was a beat. Like, we need a siren or something. <laughs> well, you know, you got you you went pretty good. You, was that was five yeah. questions? Uh, you got one, two, three, four, five. No, four. Yeah. Four questions. Yeah. yeah I'm fucked. I mean, you still well, got a good You got a C. You got yeah. a solid C. You lose C. one on a four-question <laughs> quiz. You're screwed. <laughs> So, speaking of... Can you throw a five in there? I got an 80%. Yeah, we only had four, sorry. So, all this talk about trailblazing women bring me to today's designated drinker because she's an all-around badass. She's a teacher, a writer, a journalist, a feminist, and an occasional poet. She is Elizabeth Velez. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Thank you. I don't know if I think of myself as trailblazing, but thank you. No, you absolutely are. We, I, so lovely. I want to say that I am honored that you are here. I feel like it's going to be a really great episode, but I uh, feel very fortunate to spend time with you, so thank you. Well, just watching the two of you, I feel fortunate to spend time with you. Oh, well, she's got the rest of the episode. We'll see what she says at the end. <laughs> I know, she's going to be like, these two, that one doesn't even know, did she go to college? I mean, whatever. 
She's really calling up University of Maryland. Can I just see the credentials? Because <laughs> I cannot believe that she graduated. So the other day when you were talking, uh, Elizabeth, you described your professional life, and you said it, not me, as a checkered career. Yes. Um, and I really want to get there, but I think it's really important that our listeners understand you from the very beginning. Uh, you know, Gina, she's from the dirty south, as the kids would say. Mm. Yeah. Alabama. Yeah, Alabama, Alabama. Yes, and um, it's it's funny living in Washington D.C. as I have for forty years, telling people I'm from Alabama. There's always sort of a little shock. They're like, "Well, you don't sound like that," because I think there is a sound that people think, and oh, yes. I can get there. My best friend is there, and when I get off the phone with her, <laughs> my husband's like, "What? Have you been talking to Rini?" And I'm like, "Yes, I have." But I was born in Birmingham. My mom was from Birmingham. My father was from New Orleans. And grew up there for a while, but grew up in much of the rest of the South. My in those days, men got jobs, and then they got a promotion, and they left for wherever they were going and stayed in a hotel. And the mom had to pack up the house, sell the house, take the kids. And we probably moved every one and a half years or so. Wow. So that was like Georgia. I lived some in, briefly in Mississippi, Texas, Florida. Um, so all of those places. And I would say from the time I was 12, the dream of my life was just go to New York City. <laughs> it's like, I was a big reader. I read a lot of novels. And that's what I wanted more than anything. But I will say that growing up in the South, for me, um, there are a couple of things about it. I was a very religious little girl. I carried a Bible around wow. with me. I know, I know, it's just it's Southern. <laughs> but then in Birmingham, I spent a lot of time with my grandmother, and I went to vacation Bible school in the summertime. It was all around me. And they had us sing a song, and I don't want to be offensive at all, but this is the song they had us sing. And I really believed in Jesus. Jesus loves all the little children, be they yellow, black, or white. They are precious in his sight. And I'm not saying I was super smart, but I wasn't super stupid either. <laughs> and religion immediately became in conflict yeah. with my feelings about race. So I would say that in this weird way, I was politicized as a very young girl because of religion and because I went, of what I saw in yeah. terms of race. And I would say that both of my parents were what one would call genteel racist, but just as racist as anyone. My grandfather belonged to the Ku Klux Klan. Oh, my God. So, well, that's ungeal. <laughs> so anyway, it's important that that was a political issue. And, you know, by the time I was 12, I, I no longer thought of Jesus Christ as my best friend. Yeah. So that's just kind of a background in terms of who I am. And what's interesting is I didn't think that much about gender because... I was thinking about race. I was a girl. My mother was one of, there were three brothers. 
girls were rarer in our family, but I had a great aunt who was dedicated to making sure you're you're going to be smart, going to go to school. And, you know, the old line back then is you better support yourself because you could get a husband who will, you know, disappear. Wow. <laughs> and I always took that advice to heart. <laughs> good, better, otherwise. I mean, I guess it, and if you look at it in hindsight, she was giving you good advice in that just be self-sufficient. Yes. But, uh, well, but it had that other She was a 96-year-old yeah. woman in her family who never married. And I will say this. She lived the longest and was the happiest <laughs> of any, including my grandmothers, who, of course, had children. Did she ever marry? Never. And she told us several times that she had several chances. She was gorgeous redhead, whatever. It's my great aunt Helen. I've never met a man that I could live in a house with. Wow. I love that. Wow. <laughs> it's like... I love my husband, but I, I love that. You get it. I mean, I, I, fucking get I, it. I love my husband, and I get it, too. <laughs> I 100% never, I, I love great Aunt Helen. Yeah, she, was, she was great. My whole house would be like literally appointed so well because no one would break any of my stuff. No, she was terrific. Oh, women should only live with women. I think I always say that. There's a part of me, you know, I don't want to get off track, but so my best friend Sorry. lives in Birmingham. She's an amazing woman. She was director of the Birmingham Public Library. She opened branches and shopping malls and places that people never went to the library. The last remaining women's commune from wow. the 60s wow. is in North Alabama. So every time I go to Birmingham, I'm like, Rainy, come on. We just have to see. And we haven't made it there yet, but we're going to. And it's a lot of, I think, you know, it's living in the woods. But from the 60s, it's the last one in the country. Wow. When we're talking about living with women, Gina. I can't. I don't want to live with anyone in the woods. Yeah. So. <laughs> Why can't we live in a hotel? Like men, women. Like, yeah. Do we have to live in the woods? I mean, like, I feel like we could. I mean, there's a lot of other places we can live. Yes. And um, you know, with linens and things like that that I love. And yeah. coffee as soon as you wake up. Yes, and Ready coffee water. and hot water. You know, yes. Yes. <laughs> Showers. <laughs> I mean, well, if you live in the woods, I'm sure there's shacks. All right. No, warm showers. Uh, warm. warm. You know. Yeah. Not out of a bucket. Let's not That's knock like it till we see it. You okay. know what I mean? What you if we go know. there and it's a Shangri-La of deliciousness like, and you're like, like, fuck, I want to live in the woods. All right. Sorry. <laughs> I'm, you guys go to Alabama. Go there and do a podcast. Okay. I'll show yeah. You. We could. We could. I, we could We could go to the women's commune. I mean, it would be. Uh, Briefly. For the briefly. afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they would never heard from again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so let's get out of the South, shall we? Yes, when you were a young, young woman, you did make that going to New York a yes. dream, a reality. True? Yes. Um, so I actually went to undergraduate in Texas, which is sort of where we ended up. We moved my senior year in high school um, to a school called Austin College, which also called itself the Swarthmore of North Texas. So I went to the Swarthmore of North Texas. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I spent my junior year in Dublin, oh, which nice. was, you know, part of another dream, which yeah. is go abroad. And that was an amazing thing. But so my first job, I was an undergraduate major in philosophy. I knew nothing about teaching, nothing. I liked sitting around 
thinking about all these questions, like, what's the point of anything? Um, but my first job, I was recruited and hired to teach middle school in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas, one semester. I guess it's a good thing, because I don't know how you can be self-sustaining. Uh, if you could be self-sustaining and just sit around and, philo- and just think about philosophy and the that. meaning, I would like to sign up for that. Well, <laughs> you know, one of my other dreams that I haven't done is to open a little philosophy storefront yeah. and charge people, you know, ten dollars an hour. Come in, let's talk about what is the point of everything. That's yeah. not the drag. There you go. So um, I had no idea what I was doing. This was a time when Mexican kids, corporal punishment was used against them for speaking Spanish on the school grounds. I was at the beach this week with my family, and I told the one story that is probably worth telling about that semester there. It was 1967, and people were wearing shorter skirts. I wore a skirt that came to just above my knees. The first day I came to school, the principal, who was like, you know, a football coach, said, your skirt looks short, but here's how we tell. And he had me kneel in front of him, and if the hem of the skirt touched the floor, it was okay. And it's interesting, I was telling my kids, and my daughters-in-law, and they were like, weren't you humiliated? And I think about it now, and I don't think I was. And this gets into a whole other area of, I, I was just so shocked. And then I told people about it, and we all laughed. And you know, my younger son was, Mom, you were laughing then? And I said, yeah, there was part of my generation that, you know. But anyway, to New York. <laughs> so, so I left there after the first semester um, and moved to New York, which is what I had always, always wanted to do. Um, I found a job teaching at a private school called the Bentley School. And remember, I had no teaching credentials. <laughs> I still didn't know how to teach. I think I learned how to teach 10 years ago, 20 years ago, no, 30 years ago. Um, and I told Louise, I think when we were talking, I had an apartment in the Upper West Side that cost $60 a month. Um, a one-bedroom apartment, can you believe no, that? No, one room, oh, but, one but room. a big room, and it had a little terrace. Oh, look at that. Outside. It was on the yeah. first floor. Yeah. The lock was broken on the door of my apartment, and I never got it fixed. I think yeah. about the ways we lived back then, but I knew people. It was a brownstone. The bill. I think I was being paid, I tried to think about this, $300 a month. So that's pretty affordable. Wow. Yeah. If you think, Yeah. you know, that. So it really was kind of, you know, what I wanted to do. And the first year that I was teaching, the fall after that, I guess, 1968, and this is something that Louise and I talked about as well. And I think it's sort of an important thing that happened to me in my life in terms of the way I saw the world and the way I didn't see the world ever again the same way. So um, I got pregnant, and it was... 1968, August, late August. You know, at that time, even to get birth control, you had to buy a ring, go to a doctor, beg, 
say that you were married, whatever. And I think there was this part of me that thought, well, that's just not going to happen. It's like some kind of catastrophe. I mean, I think back now and I cannot believe. So anyway, um, it was very clear to me that I could not have a child at that point. I guess I was 22. I had already decided I was going to go to graduate school. I couldn't do it. So what I did have is I had didn't have money in terms of a lot of money. You know, at the end of the month, I might have $40 left over. I did have friends. I did have cultural capital, which means I was educated. And again, it's 1968, and it's New York City. So, and I had friends of friends. So I asked around and around and around. And can I tell this part of it? I don't want to imply. Absolutely. So the person who finally, and I'm not implying that this man had anything to do with her situation, but the person who finally helped me was a friend of a friend that I had a drink with, and she was Joe Namath's girlfriend at the time. And she directed me to, she gave me three names of doctors. Dr. Sugar on West 86th Street. The one I finally went to, I don't remember his name. So having called and gotten in touch with them and talked my way through to that they trusted me, only one of them would let me say where I was and give me a phone number. I just want to give our listeners one little tidbit. We all need to know this. Abortion was illegal at the time. Yeah, right. 100% illegal. And so that's why this story is so incredibly powerful, because it's something we need to know now. Yes, I mean, it, it was. I remember just thinking, why can't I just look in the yellow pages and find abortion? And, you know, 10 years later, I could. Yeah. But that's going to be harder. So anyway, I chose the one that let me tell someone where I was. The others wanted to, like, pick me up in front of the East River. And that didn't seem like a good idea. I would not tell anyone. So I took a Greyhound bus because nobody had a car in New York to Newark, New Jersey. A lovely eye, ear, nose, and throat doctor did the procedure, the abortion, and I stayed overnight, and I came back. It cost twice my monthly salary, if wow. I'm remembering that, so like $600. Wow. And I'm trying, these numbers, yeah. I think, are about right, which means I had friends that I borrowed from. Yeah. I also had an uncle, my mother's brother, from Alabama, who was sort of different from much of my family. And he ultimately, after the fact, helped me to pay back some of my friends. Um, the one thing that kept going, sitting on that bus, I realized, because I was scared. Of course, um, of course. What I realized is, wait a minute, am I really, you know, you know that you could die. Because yeah. I had friends who had terrible stories. Am I really risking my life for this? And the answer was like, well, of course, what else would you do? But later, that seemed like this is what this is about. Put your life in the hands of strangers and hope for the best. Yeah. Um, and I also have to say, 
the feeling when it was over was relief. I felt like, I really felt like I'd saved my own life. Sure. Um, and of course, the way that reverberates for me now, um, I have a friend who has done 50 years. She had her own clinic in New Mexico of abortion work. And, you know, we were talking on the phone and we both feel broken in a way that this can't be 50 years ago. This, But, you know, I look at a lot of things now in terms of race, in terms of inequality, in terms of women's reproductive health and justice, and we're going in this direction that's incomprehensible to me. You know, I teach a class um, every other year on the culture of the 1960s. So we do film, we do television, we do literature, we do essays, we do the Black Arts Movement. Um, and every year the students say, so things were crazy then. And we say, yes, you know, there were anti-war protests with Martin Luther King, who was killed after he expanded into anti-war and working for poverty. Um, and, but I say, and they say, but things seem worse now. So what do you think? And I co-teach it with a colleague of mine who's a little bit younger, grew up in Syracuse, New York, is African-American. And Dennis and I say, yes, but we had the sense of hope and we had this sense that things might change. And that's not how we feel now. No. Yeah. So I don't want to, you know. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's really important for us to understand and the fact that you have this very touching story that you're willing to share, very intimate and personal story. It really allows for us, for those of us who are sitting here today to realize that we have gone backwards but I will say that you also give me hope and inspiration myself. <laughs> you you give me that knowing that it 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 may it's it's a tough time. I'm not gonna pretend that it's not. But I do believe that with people like you doing what you're doing, just sharing their stories, educating women today, investing in these kids. I'm jumping ahead, but um I think that in itself is what gives us hope. And maybe that you're so close to it, maybe you can't see it, but I think powerful women like you are what help. It is, it is lovely to hear that. And I have to say that my friend Charlotte and I are on the phone once a week. And, and again, she's done policy for years, thinking of, okay, here's what we do. And Charlotte, her idea is we take that power away from them. We no longer ask those people. Can I have the right to control my body, please? Um, and there are ways to do that. And the abortion pill changes things. And there are also ways in which women may need to take this into our own hands. And, you know, Charlotte, who's been doing that day-to-day -day work for so many years, has a lot of good ideas about that. So that's kind of what we think. If we keep asking, we keep begging, we can't do that anymore. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Uh, this this point in time is it, it's it's difficult. But we were talking about this earlier. Is it that those hard times you faced in the '60s, what we're facing now, are those those pivotal moments that 
we break through other things. That did we have to get here, which we talked about earlier, did we have to get here in order for things to change? Now this is a that's a big pill to swallow because I yes. this is a big change. This is a gateway scary. change. It is. It's a gateway change. What has happened is a gateway change. Yes. It's either gonna go one direction or another. Yeah. But like the other direction is gonna really affect a lot more people than just women, just your one right. Yes. Just, like I don't I don't wanna go back a hundred years and not be able to fucking vote. I don't wanna see gay marriage taken away. I don't yeah. want my children to live in a world like that. I don't No. Nope, 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 absolutely. Uh, All right, Gina, I hear you, I hear you. I, I want you to say it for part two. Good All right. stuff. All right, just let me let me breathe in. Take a breath. Let's go, let's work on a tip. All right. Welcome to Tips and Tricks. You know, it's so funny. You go to the store, you buy cantaloupes, you buy melons, you buy all these things, and you go home and everybody has been taught in their mind to cut it in half and then work backwards and, you know, make these like crescent moon cuts. And at the end of the day, you have all these, some pieces that are little, some pieces that are big, and they're all kind of all over the place. What I'm gonna teach you today seems really silly, but what it is is how to cut a cantaloupe or any melon. So we're gonna start very basic. We're gonna cut off the ends to make a flat surface. And if you're doing this to, you know, make a great fruit salad, amazing. But what we're doing this for is more important, cocktails. So we're gonna take our knife and you're gonna go in a direction. Don't worry how you're doing it. You're just gonna take this and you're gonna skin it down. And it, yes, is the first time you're gonna do this perfect? No. Is the 11th time you're gonna do this perfect? No, and then if you put a camera on you, it will never be perfect. So what you wanna do is, you know, create a space that you're not trying to dig around and get this like pulpy, you know, midsection that's all gooey and delicious. Um, you're trying to make this so it's really pretty, right? So what you can do is you get to this point and you're cutting all this and you look on the back and you're like, oh, I missed all of this. And you can take your knife, clean it up um, and just take it off. And you're just trying to get this area that you can use to create a much better presentation of using cantaloupe. And this is a great trick if you run a bar program as well, for also for professionals. So you're not trying to like fight the seed. So what you're gonna do is you're gonna take your knife, you're gonna come down. And we did a great job because we're only gonna get the section that is nice and um, full, uh, you know, like um, full. Fuck, the thing is full. Now, this section that's just nice and firm, and take that, and we're gonna take this, and we're gonna save this, very important, we're gonna use this later. Set this aside, and what you have here is a nice uniform way to start making your cuts to make your cube fruit. So when you have a recipe that calls for, I don't know, five to six cubes, or ounces, or whatever, you have a way to make these nice little cuts, and you'll have it, so that you can utilize this in cocktail recipes. And what I like to do is just put it into a bowl and you have it set aside and you can keep going. And if you want, you know, you're doing something fancy or you need to make garnishes and you want to do a different kind of cut where, you know, you have longer cuts like spears. If you want to do, you know, you know, you do your diagonals thinner, 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 thinner. And you could do more of a fan garnish 
or however you want to use it, where you do something like this. You have this like little diagonal, or you can wear it in your hair, which I think is kind of fun. You know, you never know what you want to do with it, right? Um, you throw that in there. So we're going to keep throwing our fruit in there. And then finally, you have this last, you know, piece, and you're like, oh, what am I going to do with it? Well, something fun, and this is, this is more if you are culinary and you want to like do something cool for your guests at home and you're not afraid of your knife. And I highly recommend if you are afraid of your knife, please don't ever do this. And I take no responsibility and I don't have any insurance for you using a knife at home. Um, you kind of make these like sheets, right? And what I like to do with this is instead of, you know, using this for um, using crackers in the keto day and age, right? Which you're not supposed to have fruit either. Um, I like to just take this and make these little squares. And then I take a little bit of like goat cheese and some like Maldon salt. And you have these like perfect little cantaloupe crackers. You can put a little prosciutto on top or whatever you like. And then they look really nice and you can eat it too. All right. So where are they going to go to get this tip and trick? You're going to go to designateddrinker.show and you're also going to check us out on Instagram and you can watch the tip live. Yeah. Well, not, well, not live, live, but on Instaworld. Yeah. In the, in, in the grams. Or the grams. On the or grams. Or what do the kids say? I don't know. I have to I ask don't know. Kid. But the other thing what people don't know. We have know, the kids sitting in this room. What they don't them. know. He's <laughs> 21, everyone. Um, or older. Um, what people don't know is they could actually post us, send us a question. They they DM actually, us. Yeah. They could actually D ask Gina connect a with real us. live question. Yeah. Um, connect with us personally. I'm into it. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, so this does bring us to the end of part one. Don't worry, don't worry. We've got more Elizabeth and more, and we're gonna get into her readingmotherhood.com. What's that mean? We're gonna talk a little bit about Rosemary's baby. I can't wait for you. Look at your eyeballs. But um, <laughs> but if you're anything like Gina or myself, we know that uh, one round is just never, ever, ever enough. So top off that drink and check out um, part two of this episode as we continue our boozy banter. Um, and Gina's gonna share a beautiful Elizabeth-inspired cocktail mm. recipe to boot. Yes. All right? That's yes. exciting. Yes, that's very exciting. <laughs> the Designated Drinker Show is produced by Missing Link, a podcast media company that is dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the haze of dementia, led by skilled caregivers Bobby and Mike Carducci. Now, if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy the theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and everything in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows. Your review helps our shows reach new audiences. Find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company. That's missinglink.company.